long as I can remember, I've been fascinated with disasters, what happened, why it happened, and what we can learn from them. As an anxious person, learning about these whys helps me feel more in control of my own safety. As an empath, I just want to know and tell the human stories behind these disasters. Who survived, who didn't, and most importantly, how they lived. I'm Jenny, the Disaster Queen, and I hate that disasters happen, but since they're gonna, I want to learn from them. Whether it's an act of God, act of man, or accident, I'll cover it all here. So I hope you'll buckle up real tight and come along for the ride with me. This is the Disaster Queen Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode five of the Disaster Queen Podcast. I'm your host, Jenny, the Disaster Queen, and I am so excited you've joined me today. I really keep saying this over and over again, but this is a dream come true for me. So thank you for joining me to hear about another disaster. This one, I do need to give a content warning. I've been so bad about content warnings and I'm going to turn over a new leaf and be consistent with them. So content warning for this, uh, terrorism, death of a child and serious bomb related injuries there. I will not be graphic, but you do need to know that that's included in this podcast. So let me tell you about today's disaster and why I chose it. Today we are going to discuss an act of man disaster, the Boston Marathon bombing, which took place on April 15th, 2013. I chose this because, well, I certainly remember while it ha- when it happened, and I just think it's important to talk about terrorism cases in our country. I super, super hate terrorism, uh, but... There are our lessons to be learned here, and also it's just a beautiful story of the community of Boston coming together. So it's a horrible story, but there are a lot of great things, I think, that need to be recognized about the city and their response. So that's why I chose this one. And so let's get into it. The Like I said, the disaster took place on April 15th, 2013. It was a terror attack. And it took place during the 117th annual running of the Boston Marathon. Don't need to go into huge background about the Boston Marathon. Hopefully you've all heard of it. It is our country's oldest marathon. And I would say the most prestigious. I don't know a lot about marathons, but it's definitely one of the ones that 0.0 non-runners like me definitely know about. And it takes place um, on the same day every year. Not the same number day, but the same holiday, I think. It's the second or third Tuesday in April. It's a holiday called Patriots Day, which is a public holiday celebrated in only six states, actually, in the U.S., but it commemorates several Revolutionary War battles. And of course, Boston being in New England, kind of at the heart of the revolution, they celebrate Patriots Day. So it's a public holiday in Boston. Schools close. Everybody's off work. And there's always a Red Sox game. I don't have a good Boston accent to do. I really wish that I did. I don't. But um, there's a Red Sox game. I can hear like people in my head saying socks or whatever, but I'm, I can't do it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I even tried. And it's just like a big citywide party, basically. So there's always thousands and thousands of people that line the finish line and line the route of the marathon to cheer runners on. There's thousands of people that run the marathon. I mean, it's huge. And so, um, unfortunately, some piece of garbage terrorists chose this day to launch an attack on the city of Boston. So 
What happened was at the finish line, different points near the finish line, there were two homemade pressure cooker bombs that detonated. They detonated 14 seconds and about 210 yards apart. Three people total were killed and hundreds were injured, including 17 who lost limbs. There were a lot of catastrophic injuries, bomb blast injuries, thanks to these homemade pressure cooker bombs and the jerks who set them. So sorry, I'm interjecting so much of my opinion here, but I really hate terrorists, you guys. And they caused this disaster. I mean, this did not have to happen. This is an active man. So it makes me mad. All right. So the first bomb exploded outside a store called Marathon Sports, which is located at 671 through 673 Boylston Street at 249 and 43 seconds in the afternoon. And the second bomb exploded at 249 and 57 seconds, just 14 seconds later, and one block further west at 755 Boylston Street. Of course, there's always a ton of medics and first responders at a marathon because a lot of people, I don't know if you know this, running 26.2 miles is pretty rough on your body. A lot of people really need medical treatment either on the route or definitely at the finish line. So there, that's one good thing that happened uh, was that there were a lot of medical personnel already there. And dozens of first responders and ordinary citizens raced toward the victims instead of running away from the blasts. And that's really, there's something to be said for that because, you know, two bombs went off. They, they didn't know if more were going to go off and they raced toward the victims anyway. So there's so much heroism in this story. Um, they took off their belts and tied tourniquets on wounds and rushed the injured to the medical tents and the ambulances that were standing by. You can see many pictures to this effect and scenes in documentaries about this event. There's one famous picture of a man in a cowboy hat pushing survivor Jeff Bowman in a wheelchair. Bowman lost both of his legs. It's just a very iconic picture of the kind of heroism that was going on just moments after these bombs went off. So now we have to talk about some hard stuff, injuries and deaths. Um, so content warning again, if you guys are still with me, buckle up. There were three people that lost their lives in this bombing. It's fortunate that there weren't more. Like I said, there were hundreds injured. There were many catastrophic injuries, but these three losses of life are still like really terrible and, and devastating. And a lot of families were devastated by this bombing because, you know, families go to the finish line together and celebrate. And here's a perfect example. Our first victim was only eight years old, Martin Richard. He was there at the finish line with his family, with his mom and dad, his sister and his brother. He was standing less than four feet from the second bomb. And his mother and sister were badly injured also. His younger sister lost a leg. Um, but Martin passed away. He was a second grader who loved the Red Sox. And he's remembered, there's an iconic picture of him, which you can also easily Google, um, where he's holding up a poster that he made with a peace sign that said, no more hurting people. And it makes me want to hurt someone, specifically the men who killed him. Um, because it's just, ugh, it's so sad. Ugh, he was such a sweet boy. He had such a beautiful smile. Again, if you look at the pictures of him, it just rips your heart out. Um, it's said that he was a good athlete and a good student who was kind and compassionate and always willing to help other kids with their homework. And I think that these bombers took something away from our world when they took Martin away. And I grieve uh, for him with his family. 
The next victim is Crystal Campbell. She was 29 and worked for a local catering business. She was described by family and friends as hardworking and fun-loving, and her mother, Patty, said she was the best. You couldn't ask for a better daughter. The press conference of Patty talking about losing her daughter is also super heartbreaking for anyone, especially for a parent, especially for a mom. It's terrible. Like, I hate it a lot. Um, One of Crystal's former employers posted on their Facebook page about her saying, She was an incredible woman, always full of energy and hard at work, but never too tired to share her love and a smile with everyone. She was an inspiration to all of us. If you watch the documentary American Manhunt about the bombing on Netflix, which I do recommend, Crystal's friend Karen, who was with her at the finish line and who lost a leg, um, also talks a lot about Crystal and what a wonderful person she was. And I encourage you guys to watch that and remember Crystal. Lastly, we had the death of Lingzi Liu, who was only 23 years old. She was a Chinese national attending grad school at Boston University to get a master's in statistics. And oddly enough, she's not the first, not the only, rather, Chinese national that will figure in this story. She was a hard worker, and she had won a scholarship to the Beijing Institute of Technology for her undergrad and came to Boston, like I said, for, um, I believe, a master's degree in statistics. And she went to the marathon for a real Boston experience with a friend who was very badly injured but survived. Boston police officer Lauren Woods found Lou, who was alone, as her friend had already been moved by first responders. Lou was still alive, but not for long. And Lauren Woods later said, at least I was able to tell her parents she wasn't alone when she died. So these terrorists, uh, you know, wanted to attack America, but they also greatly affected the lives of people in other countries with their terrible, terrible act. And Lindsay Liu's parents lost her. She was supposed to be having the time of her life in a foreign country, getting a master's degree. And when she came out to experience her temporary home, she lost her life. And it's so wrong. So those are our victims who passed away. I wanted to remember their lives. And I hope that you guys will watch any of the documentaries that I list in the show notes and learn more about the not only those who died, but the people who were injured and suffered catastrophic injuries and how they've recovered. It's extremely inspiring. Obviously, there was a huge investigation into this event and law enforcement jumped right away into the investigation. There were also a ton of law enforcement at the finish line. When I talk about first responders, there's tons of police there for crowd control and stuff like that. So they already had lots of police on scene who were helping with the injured and they were able to kind of start investigating right away. The FBI was involved right away, as well as the Boston PD, because, of course, they had to confirm it was terrorism, but I think they pretty much assumed right away that it was terrorism. And it turns out that was a safe assumption. (laughs) So fortunately, along all the finish line, there's it's a very commercial area. And so there were tons of stores that had CCTV cameras. So all these cameras were in their footage at all the businesses on Boylston Street were used to see if they could figure out who had placed the bombs. And they also had cameras at all, like for blocks surrounding, basically. So they could kind of try and see if they could identify anyone acting unusual, dropping a backpack off. It was immediately found. Some shredded backpacks were immediately found. And so they realized that the bombs had been in backpacks. They also could immediately tell that they were pressure cooker bombs, pretty much. So they had all this footage to use, but also survivor Jeff Bowman 
who is depicted in the movie Stronger and played by Jake Gyllenhaal. And I'm on team Taylor Swift for forever, but it doesn't mean that Gyllenhaal's not a good actor, I guess. <laughs> anyway, he played Jeff Bowman in the movie Stronger. Jeff Bowman lost both legs. When he woke up in the hospital a day or so after the bombing, he wrote on a piece of paper, quote, bag, saw the guy, looked right at me, unquote. And he was also able to give a good description of the bomber. I believe the one he saw was the younger bomber, which we'll talk about in a minute. And so that description helped identify and verify the suspects when police saw people that were on the CCTV footage that looked like, okay, this looks like the sketch that Bowman gave us. So it kind of helped them be able to solidify their suspicions about one of these two guys on the camera footage and actually the one that they saw first, which we will get into right now. So within a very short time, I believe on day two of the investigation, so the bombing day is day one. So on day two, they had gone over these thousands and thousands of hours. We're still going over thousands and thousands of hours of video. They had a huge team. Uh, They set up like a command center at a nearby warehouse, and they had a huge team of people watching video. By day two, they were able to identify two suspects who appeared to be together who they believed placed the bomb. So the first one that they saw had a white hat on, and they saw that he was like moving in another direction. Like he put the bag down and then after the first bomb went off, he started moving in another direction. They could tell that he was moving away from the bomb when everyone else was staying put or looking toward the first bomb. So they called him White Hat because he was wearing a white hat. And that is, I believe, the guy that Jeff Bowman saw. And then through going through other footage from other businesses, they were able to see that he entered the area with another guy who was wearing a black hat and sunglasses and they called him Black Hat. So they were able to see that they were together and that they had dropped bags. So they were pretty sure they had the guys on video, but they did not know who they were. So there was a big disagreement among law enforcement officials on whether to or not to release the images of the suspects. So the prosecutor, Carmen Ortiz, and the FBI guy in charge, Rick Delorier, they did not want to release the footage. They thought that it would force the suspects to possibly run or do something desperate if they released them, and they wanted to do more investigation and see if they could get their identities another way first. The Boston police chief, Ed Davis, wanted to go ahead and release them right away because he believed in his heart that if they released them, they would get calls right away identifying these guys and that they would be able to figure out who they were and find them quickly. So there was a big argument about that. Eventually... Ortiz and Delorier overruled Davis, and so the decision was made not to release their identities. However, or I'm sorry, their photos, there was a leak to the media, and they were identified by some member of the media that they were going to release the images that evening on the evening of April 18th, three days after the bombing. And so police were forced, I mean, the media basically forced their hands so that they would have to release the images before the media did, basically, if they wanted to get their messaging on there. So they had a press conference at 5.20 p.m. on the 18th, and they released the images of Suspect 1 and Suspect 2. Suspect 1 was Black Hat. Suspect 2 was White Hat. And unfortunately, they did not get any calls identifying the guys. So they didn't, their phones did not ring with that positive ID like they were hoping they would. And unfortunately, the theory that 
the image release would force the suspects to do something rash or go on the run was proven correct. So here is where I will go ahead and tell you who the bombers were, what happened after their photos were released. And this created a second disaster, basically. So first disaster was the bombing. The second disaster was honestly like the chase and capture of the terrorists. It was not great. So spoiler alert, the two brothers were eventually figured out to be, and the police did not know this when they went after them. So we'll we'll get to how they found out who they were, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you. There were two brothers named Tamerlan and Jahar Sanayev. Tamerlan was 26 and Jahar was 19. Now, I want to tell you that in all the documentaries I've watched and news footage, etc., there are about a million ways that people pronounce Jahar's name. It's spelled D-Z-O-K-H-A-R. It's pronounced, you know, Zokar, Jokar, Johar. All of his friends and his high school teachers that were interviewed call him Jahar. So that is what I am going to call him. I apologize if that's terribly wrong, but I'm just going to go with what the people who knew him best who were interviewed were calling him. So Tamerlan and Jahar Sanayev, they were originally from Dagestan and or Kyrgyzstan. There's some disagreement about that, about where Jahar in particular was born, but they had been in the U.S. for a long time and they were actually Chechen. Um, their father was Chechen, but his people had been forced away from Chechnya by good old Joseph Stalin. So they identified themselves as Chechen, even though that's not where they were born and raised. And Jahar was actually a U.S. citizen. He became a U.S. citizen just a few months before doing the bombing. I don't like why. I don't get it, Jahar. But anyway, I'll go into their background here in a bit. But first, let's keep moving on their activities three days after the bombing on April 18th. So once the two brothers saw their faces on the news, they decided to go on the run and set off their remaining bombs that they had made in New York City because they had more bombs. They only set off two at the finish line, but they had more. And they decided to um, do another little run of terrorism in New York. But they decided that first they needed another gun. They only had one gun and they wanted to get another gun. So here comes some more disaster and more death. Content warning. This involves the death of a police officer. So they decided because they needed another gun that they would kill a police officer and steal his gun. They drove over to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, which I believe is in Cambridge. And they found a police car parked with an officer in it. His name was Sean Collier. He was 27 years old and he was just sitting on his police car on campus on duty. And Tamerlan walked up to the car. Well, they both walked up to the car, but Tamerlan walked up and shot Collier several times at point blank range while Jahar tried to get his weapon out of his holster. Officer Collier heroically struggled even as he was dying to keep them from getting the weapon and his efforts and an anti-theft holster worked and the brothers left having murdered a police officer for nothing with no weapon. I mean, I'm not glad that they didn't get their weapon, but I'm just like mad at how senseless it was and how heartless. So they left without his gun, but Officer Collier did succumb to his injuries and became their fourth murder victim. A quote from his police chief is, Sean was one of those guys who really looked at police work as a calling. He was born to be a police officer. That's from MIT police chief John DeFava. 
And on the Manhunt uh, doc on Netflix, you can hear the officer who finds Collier calling for backup. And it's just so terribly sad. Um, Lots and lots of police come to the scene, but at first no one connects it to the bombers. However, it doesn't take too long for them to connect those dots because campus police officer killing is extremely rare. And soon police begin to wonder if it is the bombers on the run who have done this. So after they kill Officer Collier, the guys get busy again and they decide they need a different car. So they're in, I believe it's a Honda Civic, um, their own car, and they start cruising for a car to carjack. And they find pulled over on the side of the road answering some texts, another Chinese national in Boston for grad school named Dunmeng. Dunmeng goes by Danny, so I'll refer to him as Danny um, when I'm talking here. You can also see him interviewed on the American Manhunt doc, and he is definitely one of the heroes of this story. Danny was super proud of his new car. It was a Mercedes-Benz, he says in the documentary that he was, like, obsessed with cars. And he was so excited to have this new car, and he didn't want anyone near it. Um, but he was pulled over by the Charles River so he could text, because he's very careful about his new car. And he said he could see all the police lights in Cambridge, so he knew something was going on over there. While he was pulled over to answer that text, the brothers pulled up behind him, and Tamerlan came to his passenger side with a gun and threatened to kill him and told him to drive. Jahar followed Danny and Tamerlan in Danny's car. They drove to Watertown, and then they pulled over, they had him pull over, and Tamerlan made Danny get in the passenger seat, and Tamerlan got in the driver's seat, and Jahar got in the back seat. They told him they were the Boston bombers and that they had just killed a policeman in Cambridge and that they would kill him if he didn't do what they said. So he was absolutely scared to death. Um, They got his debit card and they went to a gas station to get gas and snacks because obviously you need snacks when you're going to go on a road trip to New York to kill more people with your terrorist bombs. Am I right? It really works up, really works up your appetite. So Danny was scared to death, but he was also looking for a way to escape. He did not believe for a second that they were going to leave him alive. They told him that they weren't going to kill him. They were just going to drop him off somewhere, but he didn't believe that. Smart guy, Danny, is all I have to say. Smart guy not believing the terrorists who just told you they killed a policeman. So they went to the gas station, and while Jahar went in to get snacks, after getting gas, Tamerlan was distracted and on his phone, and he put his gun, like, in the side pocket of the door. And so Danny saw his moment and jumped out of the car and ran across the street to another gas station where he jumped behind the counter and begged the clerk to lock the door and call 911. Tamerlan realizes, "Uh uh-oh, we're in deep crap now. So he doesn't go after Danny. He gets Jahar back in the car and they take off. And the store owner does indeed call 911. The 911 operator talks to Danny and police rush to the scene. And when they do, Danny tells them that his beautiful new car has GPS and he gives them the tracking info. So now they can find exactly where the brothers are. So just want to ring my hero bell for Danny Dunming for getting away, calling the police and having that number memorized for his GPS. So he's awesome. And I hope that you watch the Manhunt documentary and see his interview. So he's still in the U.S. today. Um, Okay. It gets real disastrous from here on. Um, The police in Cambridge put out like a bolo for this stolen car and they contact Watertown police because they can see from the GPS that it's in Watertown. But they left something out very important. They just call it in as a carjacking 
a stolen vehicle taken at gunpoint, and they did not tell the Watertown police that it was the bombing suspects. I have no idea why they left this important detail out. I am not a police officer. It's easy to Monday morning quarterback this and say this in hindsight, but it seems crazy. So that's an important part of the story. So Watertown police get the SUV's location and they soon pull up behind it and they're not expecting, even though they know the guy has a gun, they're not expecting the absolute hell that begins to rain down on them. As soon as officers got near, Tamerlan started shooting at them while they were still in their cars and they were not prepared for this, what was about to happen. A huge gun battle between Tamerlan, who still only had the one gun, but a lot of ammo apparently, and the Watertown police ensued. And then he and Jahar started throwing the rest of their homemade bombs that they had in their car, in the SUV. They started throwing the rest of their homemade bombs at the police officers. So tons of police backup arrive and there's just bullets flying everywhere. Like, I feel so bad for the people who lived on that street. They had to be scared to death. There's also crazy footage of this. I don't know if it's from a doorbell camera or dash cams or what, but you can see it in the documentary and it is wild. You can also hear the police radio calls and it's just mayhem. Um, The scene is really well portrayed in the movie Patriot's Day, which I think is on Hulu right now. It's really good. Highly recommend. Um, tons of Watertown residents called 911 and you can just hear the 911 operator saying over again, we're aware of the situation. We're aware of the situation. (laughs) Like, okay. Yeah, it was nuts. So there's bombs exploding in the street. There's tons and tons of gunfire being exchanged. Poor Watertown people, you know, are having like the outside of their house shot up. Like it's, it's wild. So they still only have the one gun, like I said. So Tamerlan ended up being in a one-on-one gun battle with a police officer who's played by, I think, J.K. Simmons in the movie. And he comes like kind of around the back of him and engages Tamerlan. And he shoots Tamerlan several times, but he just would not go down. Like, I don't know what kind of adrenaline was coursing through him, but he had been shot like nine times or something and he wouldn't go down. Then his gun jammed, either his gun jammed or he ran out of ammo and he decided to just end it. So he came out toward the cops and an officer tackled him. Also, these officers still don't know that these are the Boston Marathon bombers, you guys. Even though they're throwing bombs at them, they haven't put the pieces together, which, you know, they're not having a lot of time to think about things. They're trying not to get killed. So, you know, no shade to them. But even though the officers tackled him, he was still very hard to subdue. It took two officers to wrestle him to the ground, even though he was severely wounded. But as they were wrestling with him, Jahar jumps back in Danny Ming's bends and starts driving straight toward them at about 40 miles an hour. So the officers jumped away, but Jahar ran over his own brother, Tamerlan. And he, oh, this is terrible. The SUV dragged Tamerlan many feet and finally, like, went over a bump or something and released him. And Tamerlan suffered, suffered fatal injuries. I'm sure his gunshot wounds would have been fatal anyway, but this definitely, you know, ended any hope that he had of surviving. So he was killed and Jahar got away. Like, nuts. This gun battle in Watertown was totally cray-cray. And ended with Tamerlan's death miraculously no police officers were shot which i can't believe amazing and i'm thankful for that so jahar got away we're gonna kind of 
cut in here. And now I'm going to give you more background on the Sarnaya family before we discuss what happened to Jahar um, and how he was caught. So Tamerlan was born in 1986 in a place I have never heard of called the Kalmyk Autonomous Soviet Socialist Republic. I think this is the place that his Chechen grandfather was deported to and where his Chechen father grew up. Jahar, it says, was born in 1993, either in Kyrgyzstan or Dagestan. Like, there's some dispute about that. Um, Like I said, their father was from Chechnya and the brothers identified as Chechen, but they never lived in Chechnya. And their family was Muslim. They immigrated to the U.S. seeking asylum in 2002 and settled in Cambridge. And his dad was, their dad was hoping for the American dream, but it's not how it worked out. It was very, survival was very difficult for them. They had four children and it was just hard to make ends meet. The family hopes were really high for Tamerlan because he was a talented boxer and his dad was kind of his trainer in charge guy. And he was actually quite good. He did really well and he won a lot of matches and his goal was to compete for the U.S. in the Olympics but he reportedly gave up and became very bitter towards the U.S. when he found out that he could not compete on the U.S. Olympic team because he was not an American citizen. So that kind of sent him on a bad trajectory, that disappointment. Some reports say that the boy's mother, Zubidat, became radicalized and helped radicalize her sons into a Muslim faith that was jihadist and anti-American. But again, there's disagreement on how exactly they became radicalized. Others say Tamerlan was radicalized on trips home to Dagestan, It's not really known for sure his exact journey to radicalism, but it is widely accepted that it was he who influenced and radicalized his younger brother, Jahar. Tamerlan, despite his lack of success integrating into America, did fall in love and married an American woman, Catherine Russell, in July 2010. She converted to Islam and they had a daughter. So they had a small daughter. um, I think she was about two at the time of the bombing. And... The FBI believed that Catherine Russell had knowledge of the bombing plans, but they were never, never able to prove it. And she was never arrested or charged. You can see her in um, the documentary. You can also see like the dramatization of her interrogation and whatnot in the movie Patriots, Patriots Day. She's played by the girl who played Marley on Glee. I can't remember her name. I think it's Melissa something. Anyway, she did a good job. Um, after the bombing, Jahar can be seen on a grocery store camera. I think it's a Whole Foods, like casually buying milk for his toddler niece after he just murdered three people. It's crazy. But anyway, so it's kind of sad that, you know, Tamerlan had a family that he put through this. I don't know if his wife was complicit in the bombing or not. They haven't been able to prove that. But certainly his small child had nothing to do with it. And I feel so bad for her. So Jahar, interestingly, as I mentioned, became a U.S. citizen. In September 2012, just a few months before the bombing, which is so weird. Like, why go through with that when you're about to carry out an attack? I don't know. Maybe they hadn't started planning it yet. He was a student at UMass Dartmouth, and he was very well liked in high school and was the captain of the wrestling team. His friends were reportedly shocked that he was one of the bombers. You can see in the documentary American Manhunt on Netflix, his um, one of his teachers and a good friend from high school who was a fellow Muslim talking about how they just could not believe it was Jahar. Like it, their brains just wouldn't even be able to put together how he could have been capable of this, not the guy they knew. So it's pretty crazy. His brother's influence over him was, you know, complete and seems to have happened pretty quickly as far as Jahar's radicalization. 
All right, so that's the background I've got on the Sarnayev family and the Sarnayev brothers. Let's go ahead and move into the search for Jahar after he got away after the Watertown gunfight. As I mentioned, Tamerlan died of a combination of his gunshot wounds and being hit and dragged by the stolen SUV that his brother drove over him. But Jahar got away clean that night, abandoned the SUV in Watertown, and went on the run. They did find the brother's Honda that they had left at the scene, and that is what enabled law enforcement to finally put names with the faces they had been chasing and engaged with. So they had no idea who these guys were until after Tamerlan had been uh, killed and after Jahar had escaped. So I also saw where they found out who they were by taking Tamerlan's fingerprints at the hospital when they were trying to save his life. Those are, so those are two conflicting reports. I'm not sure whether it was from the Honda or whether it was from Tamerlan's fingerprints, but in any case, they did not know their identities until after Tamerlan was already dead. And they also discovered, much to their chagrin, that Tamerlan's name had previously been given to the United States by Russia as a potential radical Islamist. Ugh, not great. As a matter of fact, Tamerlan and his mother were interviewed by the FBI in 2001, but after that interview, they were deemed not to be a threat. So they were deemed not to be a threat, and they just didn't follow up with them. So when they got his name and saw that he had, they had previously been alerted to him, I think they really, really wanted to, you know, bang their heads against a wall. And hopefully we learned something from that. I'll get into that on the What We Learned section. Okay, anyway, with Jahar on the loose, Boston's mayor put a shelter-in-place order on the city and many suburbs of Boston. So the city of Boston, entire public transit system was closed, Amtrak wasn't serving Boston, and the airport was still open, but it was under heightened security. Of course, this lockdown included Watertown. Um, schools and colleges were closed, and police went door-to-door in Watertown since that's where Jahar was last seen, searching houses. However, they were like, we can't keep Boston in lockdown forever. So it lasted just about 24 hours. And on the evening of April 19th, they lifted the shelter in place order because Jahar had not been found. But two hours after the order was lifted, a Watertown resident went outside for a smoke and noticed that the cover on the boat in his backyard was askew. So he moved a little closer to figure out what was going on with his boat. And he saw blood on the boat. And then he peeked inside and saw someone lying in the boat with lots of blood around him. So he beat a hasty retreat back into his house and called the police. Soon, a bajillion police officers from all over showed up. They, everyone who heard the radio call, like no matter what jurisdiction they were in, came. Like, it was in Watertown, but Boston PD came, FBI came, everybody came. There were way too many officers there. <laughs> One of them started shooting in response to movement in the boat, and there was a lot of dangerous crossfire for a hot minute until someone called a ceasefire because Jahar didn't even have a gun. So, yeah, any claim that Jahar fired first is not correct. But I understand a lot of confusion can happen in these situations, but still, it was pretty crazy and dangerous there for a minute. Then helicopters flying above verified movement in the boat with a thermal imaging device so they knew for sure that there was someone in there. And after about two hours, a badly injured Jahar finally gave up. He was arrested and taken to the hospital where he was in critical condition from gunshot wounds received during the firefight in Watertown the previous night in which his brother was killed. But he did make a full recovery. 
and they interrogated him to a point in the hospital and he had to like write down all his answers. Um, he was arrested and charged right away and was assigned a federal public defender, but his trial did not begin until 2015. So quite a long period of time after the initial bombing. He was on trial not only for the bombing and the murders of Martin Richard, Crystal Campbell, and Lindsay Liu, but also for the murder of Officer Sean Collier and many other charges. I believe it came up to 30 charges in all. His lawyers used the defense that he was heavily influenced by his brother, and so he wasn't responsible, but the jury did not buy it, and he was convicted and received the death penalty. His sentence was overturned on appeal in 2020, but the U.S. Supreme Court overturned that ruling and reinstated his death penalty sentence in 2022. Regardless of whether or not he is executed, he will at least spend the rest of his life in prison. As he should, because he's a terrorist and a murderer. So, this is obviously a terrible event, but I do want to point out again, as I mentioned before, how the city of Boston really came together after the bombing. How all the first responders and citizen bystanders were so helpful to those who were wounded and how the city really came together in patriotism and support of their law enforcement. After Jahar was captured, there was just like a huge celebration in the streets. The people of Boston and a lot of the law enforcement officials who were talking were just moved to tears by that display. And also the people who survived with serious injuries, amputees, um, they are so inspiring. Several of them have run the marathon and I want to just read their names and I hope that you guys will watch. I've listed like three different documentaries in the show notes in addition to American Manhunt on Netflix that I hope you guys watch because I want you to see some of these survivors and their stories. So there's Jeff Bowman, Heather Abbott, Celeste Corcoran, Jeff Downs, and Jessica Kinski, who are a married couple. They are portrayed in the movie um, Patriot's Day. Jane Richard, whose brother Martin was killed. Adrian Hazlitt, Erica Brannock, Karen Rand McWaters, who's Crystal Campbell's friend, who was with her when Crystal was killed. Mary Daniel, Mark, I'm oh, sorry, Mark, I don't know how to say your last name. Vicarl? Sorry, Mark. I'm going to put your name in the show notes. Rebecca Gregory, Roseanne Sedoya. I believe Roseanne was in a documentary that I watched, and I believe she married a first responder who helped save her, which is, like, amazing. And Steve Wolfenden. Those are the names of the amputees that I could find. I believe I am missing one name, but I looked and looked and looked, and these are the only ones that I could find. So if anyone knows the name that I missed, please feel free to email me, and I will update that in the show notes. Okay, so what did we learn? I don't, I didn't find any like specific like how the Boston Marathon changed things, but I will say I think definitely something that the FBI learned was triple check and follow up on those people on watch lists for a longer period of time. So they just went and interviewed Tamerlan and his mother, who the Russian government had identified them might be jihadists, and then they were like, nope, they don't seem like a threat. And they just closed the case. So I am hoping that in the future they learned that you might want to, like, just follow up with those people or surveil them or whatever for a longer period of time. And then also, I think they learned a big lesson about firearm safety when ma massive police events are happening. So the Watertown shootout, the first one, 
where Tamerlan was killed, it was so crazy and dangerous for the residents there. And it was just mayhem. I mean, I know they weren't expecting these to be the Boston bombers. They thought it was just a carjacking. So hopefully they learned lessons about communicating that as well. But it was pretty dangerous for the people of Watertown. And honestly, police are lucky that no civilians were killed. So I'm hoping that they learned some lessons there. And also with the second event with Tamar, I'm sorry, with Jahar being in the boat where the police, somebody just started shooting in response to movement on the boat. Like there needs to be some more training and, uh, communication around not being so trigger happy in those situations. So I'm hoping that's what they learned, but I didn't, you know, I didn't find in my research anything that was like, this is what we learn. So I did learn something about the resilience of the American people, which we all, you know, have ex- experienced after 9-11, but also this is just another example of one specific community who really came together and banded together to help each other get through a really traumatic event. And continue to run that marathon and continue to make it a big Boston holiday in a time of celebration. Of course, a time of remembrance as well, but they did not let the terrorists scare them into changing their way of life. And I have big respect for that. So Boston strong. Sorry, that was terrible. I should have done that. My apologies. All right. That's it for me, you guys. Thank you so much for listening to episode five of the disaster queen. I will be back in two weeks with a new episode. I really appreciate it if you're enjoying the podcast. If you would rate and review to help others find it, tell your friends, subscribe. And if you have any suggestions for me, shoot me an email at disasterqueen at gmail.com. And stay safe, you guys, and don't be a disaster. Bye. The Disaster Queen podcast is written, researched, and produced by me, Jenny Rapson, the Disaster Queen. Original theme music and sound engineering by Robert Rapson. Editing is by Josh Rapson. You can get him for your editing needs at joshrapson.edits at gmail.com. Original podcast artwork is by Ken Clark. And disasterqueen.com website design is by Hello Chicky Design. Check her link in the show notes for all your site design needs. All show notes can be found at disasterqueen.com. Got an episode suggestion? Email me at disasterqueenpod at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow at DisasterQueenPod on Instagram and at DisasterQPod on Twitter.